Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I just want to like put this out as a disclaimer on this whole episode and this whole moment. We don't know a lot that we need to know to say anything confident about this election. Um, we don't know the final results. The exit polls are totally unreliable. So we're we're all operating as I've as I've said before in in a bit of an epistemic fog. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I am here with Ezra Klein. It is noon Eastern time on Thursday, November 5th. I was hoping that we would know who won the election by the time we recorded this show, but we do not. Um, and the show must go on. So I, I am here with Ezra. Um, and we're going to talk about what what we think we know. Um, so Ezra, who who, who is going to win the election? This is what people really want to know. I think at this point, Joe Biden looks to be on track to win the election. Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. I don't have any knowledge of this that people who are listening here in the future are not going to have. But the expectation is he has enough votes in Pennsylvania. He seems to still be somewhat favored in Arizona, somewhat favored in Georgia. Um, Nevada is a little bit unclear to me uh, just because we don't seem to know some key things there. Uh, so how much what, what one should expect there is, is a little bit unknown. I, I don't think the question at this point is really whether or not Biden will win. I mean, if he doesn't, he doesn't. But I think the question is what sort of governing situation he's going to encounter. So in the Senate, it looks like Senate control is likely to be decided by two special elections in Georgia. Georgia has gotten bluer since we've gone through this the last couple of times. I mean, it's gotten bluer since uh, Obama lost it by five points. Um, and so Georgia is a place where Democrats can win. It is a place where Joe Biden may win. But in general, the party that wins the presidency doesn't tend to do well in the immediate um, aftermath of special elections because the losers of the presidency are upset and want to take revenge. So I think it is pretty likely that Biden is going to face a Mitch McConnell Senate, um, which obviously constrains his governing agenda in really, really profound ways. We can talk about this, but but a line I've been using here is that I think Democrats may win the presidency and, and, and lose democracy. Um, the House, it looks like there's going to be a loss of somewhere in the range of five to seven seats for Democrats. Uh, I think that's also not fully clear yet. But Pelosi will remain speaker, but it'll be a thinner majority. And then at the state legislature level, which is important because redistricting is going to happen, Democrats made basically no gains. I mean, I think they've done a little bit on the margin, but Republicans are going to control that process in the states, which is further going to entrench their uh, advantages at different levels, particularly in the House. And so I think Biden is going to win, but I think that the zone of victory where he would have enough support at the federal level to govern um, and then to build something closer to a democracy in this country is unlikely to manifest. And it's not going to manifest, not because Democrats didn't win a ton of votes. He's probably going to have a gigantic popular vote margin, maybe bigger or looks likely to be bigger than Obama in 2012 or Bush in 04. Democrats are going to win more Senate votes, more House votes. But the map is so against them that anything absent of a true gigantic landslide isn't enough for Democrats to actually get a governing majority anymore. Yeah, I mean, the, so, you know, we, we talk about the, the the map is against them. And, you know, what that means, right? I mean, you, you're talking about the House, the, the loss of House seats, which, you know, is interesting, right? It's in some ways the most sort of deflating thing. But when you when you look at the districts where it seems like Democrats are losing, these are districts that Trump won, even while losing the popular vote, right? It's just the the map is drawn such that Trump wins a majority of the districts. Yes. And so I don't know how to convey what is happening here correctly. For most of American history, the ways in which the political system were built 
and the ways in which geography distorted it did not have a routine partisan valence. Um, because for most of American history, there wasn't the parties were ideologically mixed and demographically mixed, as I've said many times, and people can read my book on this. But importantly, density was just not highly correlated with party vote. Like you, you, you can look at in 1916, the density of a place simply told you nothing about how it would vote. Now it tells you functionally everything about how to vote. There's simply no dense cities that vote Republican, and rural areas are overwhelmingly um, Republican. And the entire system is set up to make density, uh, to, to overrepresent rural areas. But then on top of that, we have a very unusual system in which you have partisan actors administering elections, drawing districts, and of course, at the Supreme Court level now, setting down rulings on how on, on what is appropriate in, in, in both of those in, in both of those pursuits. And so you get into what I've called before this doom loop of democracy, where a party that cannot win routinely majorities of the vote will begin turning against democracy itself and trying to make it easier to win power without winning votes. And that is exactly what has been happening with the Republican Party for years now. And by the way, this is all happening in context of a president, a Republican president right now, who is absolutely fulfilling the fears of his critics and has certainly started up an autocratic attempt in an effort to functionally win the election in a coup. Um, he has been tweeting, stop the count. He has been sending his allies to Pennsylvania and Michigan, um, putting them in court to try to stop the count. That's not really going anywhere. He has uh, supporters who are massing outside places where they're counting absentee ballots, counting mail-in ballots, or yelling, stop the count. Of course, in places where he's behind in the count, they're yelling, you know, keep counting. Um, it's important to note that if they did stop the count, exactly as I am speaking, Donald Trump would lose. Donald Trump is, is behind in states representing 270 electoral votes. But I think the fact that he would lose if they stopped the count, even as he is yelling to stop the count, just goes to show you how much a Republican or Trumpist identity is becoming connected with an anti-small-D democratic set of impulses and sentiments. That's a really dangerous thing. I mean, in general, I think Fox News has done a reasonably good job here. Um, there's this Kaylin McEnany, um, the, the White House press secretary, was on there saying, you know, they don't want to count these votes that have you know, were postmarked by election day, but, but came in after. Brett Baer and, and, and another sort of news anchor were really pushing back on her. The Fox News decision desk has done a good job. But if you are watching Fox Prime, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Ingram, um, they're fully all in on this being a, a, a rigged election. So we are seeing uh, a party that is using its power to try to entrench minoritarian rule and will apparently have the power to keep doing that, a party that is ideologically turned against democracy, a party that is relatively supportive of a president who now as an election has turned against him is simply saying the election should be thrown out, the counting of votes should be stopped. It doesn't look like Republican officials are like joining the president at this moment in that call. But I don't think you get so much credit in American politics for simply passively saying nothing while that is being done. I think it would be good to see a huge chorus of condemnation of the president's actions. We are just simply not hearing that. Like, we are not hearing that. So, you know, people know that my big thing has been that this is a fight for democracy. And I think that on some level, obviously, getting Trump out of office, if that's how it ends up, is a good thing in that fight. But a lot more needed to be won here. And it wasn't. This is sort of the question that I have looking at these results, which is that, you know, we started this conversation talking about the Senate, talking about gerrymandering, talking about uh, how the density gradient has shifted American political institutions. And, and then we shifted pretty rapidly into talking about Trump and Trump's sort of autocratic personality, his disregard for the rules, um, his effort to sort of illegitimately set down vote counting. And I mean, I wonder, do you think that there has been, given that like, we knew these facts about the map, right? They've been visible for four years. Was there too much emphasis from liberals and from Democrats on the idea of Donald Trump as a threat to democracy? Like when I listened to Barack Obama saying like, democracy is on the ballot this year and, and, and other people saying that, it always sounds to me like they are talking about Trump. They are not talking about institutional reform in the United States. So I, I don't know on this. I have a couple of thoughts here and they're unfocused, uh, I, I want to say. And also, I just want to like put this out as a disclaimer on this whole episode and this whole moment. We don't know 
a lot that we need to know to say anything confident about this election. Um, we don't know the final results. The exit polls are totally unreliable. So we're we're all operating as I've as I've said before in in a bit of an epistemic fog. But let me say a couple things on this. So one, the idea that Democrats have focused on Donald Trump's strongman impulses as the threat to American political institutions, as opposed to the Republican Party's effort to entrench a minoritarian rule pathway. I think that is correct. I actually think Democrats have been more focused on the wrong threat. I think that the Trump threat has for some time, it's been clear that it is something he would like to do, but not something he really has the the focus, capacity, or support to do. Um, So it's scary, and I think it should be taken as a dangerous thing, and the Republican Party's relative passivity in its face, occasional, com- oftentimes uh, ac- outright complicity. And then, um, you know, uh, among like the, the the stauncher members of the Republican Party, just ignore, like pretend ignorance of it. It's just like a terribly scary situation where you realize that if somebody were better at doing this, they could just do it here. Meanwhile, the Republican Party has been quite successful in this, in, in trying to open up this, this minoritarian pathway. You know, at the same time, Democrats have been trying to win an election here, right? In order to change any of this, you need to actually win power. And so spending a lot of time fighting about the rules, I don't think is any – I've never heard anybody who is good at winning elections or good at polling elections tell me that that is a a, a winning message. Um, you know, if Democrats were to do the kinds of things that I think they should do if they win the Senate, like get rid of the filibuster and give statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico and just like move fast on a bunch of democracy reforms, I wouldn't say like make it a giant message for a year and fight about it. I would say do it and move on to like delivering real benefits in, in, in people's lives with a governing majority you've assembled. Now, it doesn't look like they'll have the power for that, but but – but that would be my my theory of it. Um, and then I think there's there is a lot of takes going around. And I'd actually like to hear your your view on this, Matt, about whether or not Democrats focus too much on, on Trump himself. Like this was an argument that got made after Clinton's loss in 2016. I'm now hearing it again sort of with, with Biden, although I think it's abating a bit as people get out of the Florida shock and realize that Biden's going to put together a pretty big winning majority. Um, it looks like he'll have, a, a, again, a bigger popular vote majority than Obama did in 2012. So at some point you have to say, and that's, by the way, not in a world where Donald Trump didn't get turnout. Trump's coalition expanded. And while like Biden did lose Hispanic support and 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 there's some things that are concerning there, Biden's coalition expanded. And so there's some reason to think actually Biden played the messaging of this well. If you look at the um at some of the projects that assess ads, Biden ran this very positive campaign. He didn't run a substantially anti-Trump campaign when he was focusing on persuadable voters. So that's different than what you do at the DNC in your big speech or something. That's much more about um, your base. Uh, And I think a lot of the places where we all tune in are more about the base. But if you look at the campaign, the messaging, the way Biden ran um, when trying to target these voters, they were running a much more positive, jobs-focused, issue-focused campaign. And by the way, much more so than Trump. Trump's campaign was much more negative in terms of its advertising than Biden's was. Um, and at the same time, one just interesting thing, you you mentioned, Matt, the the House results where to the extent Republicans getting pickups, they're in places Trump won. But it also does seem that Republicans are running a little bit ahead of Donald Trump in the House. And, and you've tweeted to this effect, but Donald Trump appears to be less popular and a worse messenger than a lot of other Republicans out there. One reason Democrats did so well in 2018 is that like, the only way to express frustration against, uh, against Donald Trump was to vote against the Republicans on the ballot. But now there are more opportunities to split that. You can not like Donald Trump, but but like Purdue, for instance. And so that appears to be playing some role here. So there is, I think, some reason to believe that the Democratic focus on Trump, to the extent it was done for the the base and, and in the right venues, was a reasonable call to make. But but I'd like to hear where where you're thinking on on this is right now. Well, you know, this sort of related to the question I asked you of whether you think Democrats emphasize Trump too much, which I meant not necessarily in terms of their campaign messaging, but their own thinking, right? I think if you look at Biden's campaign, you got to say, well, we're not sure what will happen, but it looks like Biden won the election, uh, which is his job, right? And if you take seriously a lot of the rhetoric that you know, progressive people have deployed over the past four years, not just campaign rhetoric, right, but like internal progressive conversations that like Donald Trump is an existential threat to American democracy, then that seems to imply that whatever the Biden campaign 
thought they had to do to beat Trump was the right thing to do, right? To eliminate this existential threat. Now, if you think what I think smart progressives thought, which was that whatever you think of Trump on the merits, he's like a below replacement rate uh, Republican candidate who's clowning uh, gave Democrats a golden opportunity to try to win a landslide election that would let them fix some of these institutional things, then you do have to question, right? So it's like Biden's message, he did a lot of COVID messaging, right? Because Trump's COVID polling was really bad. Uh, Biden is seen as trustworthy on that issue. So he really emphasized that. But that's not a topic that says to voters Oh, also, you need to vote for a House Democrat. You know what I mean? Like, it's a it's an open invitation to ticket splitting, which there seems to have been some ticket splitting, mostly in favor of down-ballot Republicans. You also see that, like, in a t- Senate race, like, in, in Texas, right, where Biden lost Texas, but it was, it was pretty close. But MJ Hagar lost, like, really, really, really badly. Uh, because if what you say to people is that, like, the problem in America is that this maniac with his terrible Twitter feed who doesn't listen to the experts is president— but you have some doubts about the progressive agenda, then it's like, yeah, like you can vote for Biden and and you vote for John Cornyn because there's a lot of things you can say about John Cornyn, but like he's not a loose cannon with his Twitter feed. Um, He doesn't say crazy stuff like he's just a conservative Republican who who wears a suit and he's normal. I don't know. I don't know that we have like really strong reason to believe that a different messaging choice would have made a difference there. But it's it's the kind of thing you look back on, right? Like when when you feel the feelings uh, that come out of this election, which I, I think for a lot of people, for plugged in progressives, they feel bad about this outcome, right? They don't feel hooray, the orange man is gone. They feel, oh, shit, we kind of blew our shot at gaining unified control in Washington, and it's not clear when it'll ever come back, right? So 2022, Republicans are going to have a really good chance of winning the House because the incumbent party normally loses in the midterms, and also Republicans are going to get to re-optimize all of their gerrymanders, right? Because gerrymanders lose efficiency over the course of the 10-year cycle because politics changes. Um, So Democrats may well lose the House in 2022. It'll be really hard to win Senate seats then. Uh, So then you get 2024, where, say, Biden does really well there. But that's the worst Senate map, right? That's the repeat of the terrible 2018 map for Democrats. So then you got another midterm. So now you're like, I mean, who knows? Like, we might have a Mars colony by the end of two Biden terms, right? I don't see a viable path from where we are to a unified democratic control of government unless they are able to sort of pull the inside straight of winning Georgia and then winning two different special elections there. And and one thing I would just add on that real fast is that if then you say, well, that obviously means Biden should be way more aggressive on executive actions. The fact that Republicans now have a 6-3 Supreme Court also limits his movement there. Yes, exactly. I mean, and you have to think about all the sort of parts of the system as as a moving part. And it's like, I don't, I don't see it. Like, I can imagine, I have no idea what's going to happen government-wise in, in the future. I can imagine things going in a bunch of different directions. But the directions range from Biden becomes a popular and successful president who doesn't do all that much stuff, you know, kind of like second-term Bill Clinton, to it's like a huge catastrophe, you know, of like big crises and and stuff like that. I, I just like, I don't see from here going forward a big win on climate change, on healthcare, on anything coming forward. And I just don't know that that was conveyed to people like before the election, like exactly how desperate the circumstances were. I think that's true. I, It's tricky because so much of this ends up in expectations, right? Mm-hmm. There is a lot of Democrats because of the polling, which had this sort of eight to nine point Biden lead, feel super let down today. I had a great conversation with Chris Hayes on, on, on the UK show that just came out yesterday. And he made this good point about this, I thought, which is that it's like 
that was never real. The, the problem in, in journalism is we treat that as if like that was the real thing. And mm -hmm. then like the like the reality we're actually in is a divergence from that universe, which should be treated as true. But clearly the polling was wrong. I mean, if you look at what happened in a bunch of the Senate races, if you look at the way the polling did the same thing in the same states for, for Trump in 2016, the polling was wrong. The picture it was giving you of the electorate was an incorrect picture. Like it did not happen. I mean, there's the polling nationally is not going to be super far off. I'm seeing estimates right now of about a 4.5 point Biden national vote victory, but the nation doesn't vote. And so it just wasn't the case that Biden was as strong or Democrats in general were as strong in these states as polling keeps saying they are. This is like it underestimated um, Democrats in these states to some degree in 2018. I mean, Georgia and Florida were big disappointments for, for Democrats that year. Um, it underestimated them, obviously, catastrophically in 2016. And so you're in a situation where what progressives had begun to believe was possible may not have been possible. Like, I, I think that's actually an important point here, which is to say not that they don't have enough votes, but they don't have enough votes in the places they need the votes. And maybe a different message on the margin would have been better and maybe it would have been worse. I think this is a problem with counterfactuals. Um, the crude, naive version of counterfactual thinking is we did this. It didn't work out as we hoped. We should have done that. But of course, that could have worked out worse than this. If you go back six, eight months, nobody thought Biden could win the Senate, right? Like if you, you go back and you read like Vox coverage of the Senate uh, campaign from the beginning of, you know, like 2019, the view was the Senate is not really in reach for Democrats. And it was coronavirus that changed that. So I understand then why Democrats were emphasizing the issue that was, had reshaped the electorate, at least perceptually. Um, the other things weren't working. Like, there's not a reason really to believe they could have won the Senate on pre-existing conditions. And to the extent they could, they tried. I mean, if you go, like, look at the John Ossoff-Purdue debates, there's a super viral moment. It's all about pre-existing conditions. So I don't know what to say exactly about messaging. Messaging... The great thing about argument messaging is you can always believe that your way would have worked a bit better. Um, and there's like an endless joke on Twitter right now of everybody saying, you know, this the, the the key thing to understand about this election is it proves that my views were right all along. And there's like real truth to that because you can't disprove it. You like Andrew Sullivan saying it's like a repudiation of identity politics and Bernie Sanders people, you know, making the argument for materialism and like Hillary Clinton folks saying Clinton would have won by a landslide in this election, right? Like, but I. Really asking about about messaging? No, I'm just though. I'm speaking I about mean, something like, broader, like the communication, like inside the community. But, like, but what would that have done? Like if they talk to progressives more about how the Senate is important. I, I think I'm yeah. Tell, give, I, I give mean, me I'm, I, I, I'm I'm just reflecting, you know, on like what yeah. what what we were all doing uh, these past several years, right? Because like, could you go back in time if you had in your mind? Right. This the the real polling the whole time, if it just always looked like Biden was on track uh, to win, you know, a, a narrow electoral college victory, but a, but a solid popular vote victory while losing ground in the House and making insufficient gains in the Senate. If that's just like what the polls were saying all along, like I would have emphasized Donald Trump less like in my journalism. If you know what I mean, like not not necessarily saying as like a vote getting tactic, but like I would have been trying to make it clearer to people that like this outcome we were headed for was actually not not very good. Oh, I, I think I feel I think something you're hearing is me talking my own book because I actually look back at my journalism on this question over the past few years. And I feel pretty good about it. I feel like <laughs> I've Your spent journalism's a lot amazing. Of Thank you. I've, I've spent a lot of time emphasizing the democracy problem um, and have been trying to raise the alarm on it. And I think one reason I have a slightly different view on this than you is I have been surprised by how well that has, not just because it's not coming from me, but how rapidly that conversation has advanced. I, If you had told me a couple of years ago how plausible it would have seemed that Democrats would get rid of the filibuster if they took the Senate and possibly reshape the composition of the court and take seriously D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood and H.R. 1 and H.R. 4, I would have told you you're dreaming. But I think Democrats came to appreciate this more significantly, more rapidly than I had anticipated. So to me... I'm sure there's like more that one can do. And like the question of like, should we all emphasize Trump a little bit less is always a, is always a reasonable question. But 
I was really struck by how rapidly that conversation moved forward over the past six months. And I think the tragedy of this is that I mentioned that a year ago, I would have said the Democrats can't retake the Senate. But I also would have told you a year ago, even if they could, even if you assured me somehow they would, there's no fucking way they're going to get rid of the filibuster. And then three weeks ago, I would have told you Democrats can retake the Senate and they may get rid of the filibuster and a lot more besides that. And now, you know, compared to that world, I'm like kind of depressed because I think democratizing the country is really important. Like my last pre-election podcast with Stacey Abrams was all about democratization. And we barely mentioned Trump because like he's not the fundamental impediment to it. But this moved. I think Democrats get this now. I just don't think they really have a way to act on it because the thing that is putting them behind the eight ball on this is the thing that is making it hard to fix. Like the fact that they are so like the, the system is so rigged against them winning enough power to change the system is also why they can't win enough power to change the system. Right. It's like this. It's like this tautology eating itself. Yeah. Let, let, let's take a break. And, and then and then I want to talk more about that. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So, you know, when Trump won in 2016, that was a very, I mean, a lot of people found it very upsetting, but it was a very um, morale boosting in its way, right? There was incredible activation among people who didn't like Trump. We saw, you know, huge explosion in grassroots enthusiasm. There was this like incredible string of Democratic special election wins. And that really carried through to this election, right? Like you look at these Senate races, the Democrats lost. And their candidates in South Carolina, North Carolina, Texas, um, they had tons of money, right? Like Democrats were really fired up about this. And where do you think that goes, right? Like when it turns out that, you know, text banking and giving all your money to Jamie Harrison and, you know, clicking on on all the articles about how Trump is bad and, you know, reading uh, Ezra takes about democracy. Like when that doesn't work, it seems to me that the Republican advantage is likely to grow because it's going to be very demoralizing to see that, like, your your activism is not efficacious. 
Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but but let me let me start this by saying I think it's a wrong way to think about it. I think a lot of the activism was efficacious, and people have the wrong counterfactual in their head. And let me let me frame this by saying something I was wrong about. So over the past couple of years, something I've said a lot is Donald Trump won in 2016 with his razor thin minority majority, right? Popular vote minority, electoral college majority in these three states. And so something I always argued was that okay, he has to expand his coalition and he's not doing anything to do that, right? He's not running a strategy of reaching out to new voters. He's not running a strategy of winning over people who felt skeptical towards him. The hitch in this was the economy was really good for a while, um, but then that ended too with coronavirus. So Trump, like in my head, was shrinking. You know, he was running a kind of more and more narrow strategy. Our colleague Jane Coaston has these great pieces about how he's run this extremely online strategy, right? With all this weird stuff about Hunter Biden and whatever. That isn't how this played out. Trump expanded his coalition. He won over um, a significant portion of Hispanic voters. I, we should be clear, like not a majority of Hispanic voters or something, but, you know, on the bad data we currently have, it looks like something like a five-point swing. Um, I don't know what that will ultimately look like when all of the data is in, but but there's clearly some shift there. And not uniform. And not right? uniform. So it was so it was a good it, it was really healthy gains, it seems like, in South Florida and South Texas. Poss- I, I just saw data indicating he he gained Latinos in Massachusetts, which nobody cares about. Um, but but in in California, Nevada, Arizona, it looks like maybe not. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's an, an electorally significant group of people. But but in addition to that, I don't even just mean he expanded his his base in terms of groups who supported him. He also just he he got more votes, right? Like the number of people who voted, like the literal number of people who voted for Donald Trump went way up um, between 2016 and 2020. So he turned out new people. And what happened is not that Biden in a low turnout election of a disliked incumbent and a boring challenger won. It's that Biden and the Democrats, with obviously Donald Trump's help as a mobilizer, turned out way, way, way more people. It's a fucking huge turnout election. And if they didn't do that, they would have lost. Like I, I like that is an important point in all this. Democrats, it looks like, I mean, Biden will have the single biggest vote total of any president who is ever, any candidate who has ever run for the presidency. Um, I don't think Donald Trump will be number two on that. I think that's still going to be an, an Obama record in number two. Um, but we'll see, right? The, the counting is not done. But Donald Trump absolutely could have won this election. He absolutely could have won it. And it is hyper-mobilization among Democrats that uh, looks like it will lead to him not winning the presidency. So just one thing like Democrats should feel good is like they did this. They, they did it. Like, and it didn't have to happen. If they had just voted at the same rates as in 2016, Donald Trump wins again. Um, and he doesn't look at this moment like that is going to happen. And for all that you're hearing a little bit of a tired, say pessimistic view on legislative politics here on the weeds, like where the point is like what can actually get done. It nevertheless is a big fucking deal that Donald Trump is not going to be president again if that holds. Big deal on executive actions, big deal on the Paris Climate Accords, on all kinds of foreign policy issues. Big deal in terms of the coronavirus response. Big deal on a hundred other things, right? The presidency is important. But then you get into this question, I think, Matt, that, that you're raising of like Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. It is a little unclear to me what the whole Senate picture looks like now. The South Carolina Jamie Harrison thing exploded at the end of the race into uh, the, the uh, apparent um, competitiveness, which now it looks to me like it was never truly competitive. I want to see what Maine looks like after the uh, ranked choice voting plays out, just to see how close or far that actually was. But yeah, I mean, Democrats operate at a huge disadvantage in the Senate and the House, which has this demobilizing effect when paradoxically what they have to do is hypermobilize in order to overcome it. And that's a really tough position for a party to be in because it means constant disappointments and nothing demobilizes like disappointment, right? People don't tend to lose things like this and then say like, well, I'm going to redouble my efforts next time. At a certain point, you just kind of get sad. And Democrats are going to have to somehow fight that. And it's going to be even harder in a weird way if Joe Biden is president because uh, parties mobilize in opposition. It's much easier to mobilize your party in opposition. And I think Biden is not going to be the kind of president who, like Trump, is hyper-mobilizing by picking constant fights and creating the sense of a culture war that, that your side is nevertheless losing. So that's going to be a, a tricky space of it. But I, I think this is one message I do want to give. Like, yeah, people donated too much money to Jamie Harrison, but in terms of overall mobilization and energy and, and intent here, 
it worked, right? It overcame Trump's advantage, it looks like, in the Electoral College to win the presidency, which is a really important thing. So I don't want the left to feel too bad about this one. Like this is a this was an important thing they accomplished too. Then the question becomes, what do you do strategically moving forward, right? In a world where politics has changed, right? If this was old-fashioned politics, if this was uh, Gilded Age politics, in which not that much money went into campaigns, and actually the point of winning was that you would control the patronage and sort of money would flow out of the government into the party boss's pockets, you would look at this if you're a Democrat and you would say, look, we just have to like change what our political party is all about. And that being a political party that is about people who live in large metro areas uh, doesn't make sense in a country where the electoral system is biased toward rural areas. Like we just like we we want to win because that's our mission as a corrupt, non-ideological Gilded Age entity. But it's telling, right, that it's not just that Jamie Harrison raised a lot of money and then he lost, but he raised so much more money than Steve Bullock, who also lost. Uh, But Bullock came closer. And more important, Bullock ran well ahead of Biden, uh, unlike a lot of other Senate candidates. And that's because, like, had Bullock won, like, liberals would have found him really infuriating. I think liberals found his presidential campaign infuriating. Uh, Liberals don't like Joe Manchin very much. But it's challenging, right? Like an enthusiasm-based politics in which you're just getting people to click on Act Blue and and give away their money. Like they want to give money to people who who speak to them. And if the map is against you, though, it seems like you actually need candidates who speak to people who are very unlike the Democratic base. And I don't I, I, I guess, like, I don't see that. My, my official recommendation would be that's what you should do. Like, you should run Joe Manchin-type candidates in jurisdictions that are somewhere between Georgia and West Virginia on the ideological spectrum. But that doesn't seem realistic to me. Is there is there some other option that I'm missing? I don't know if there's another option. Uh, I do want to say two things on this, and and one on the sort of constant misallocation of resources you see in every election. Um, you know, Beto and Ted Cruz, arguably, and in, in, in 2018. Oh, for some reason, Maxine Waters's opponent raised all this money. That that was like the Republican version of this. Well, AOC's opponent raised a shit ton of money this year. Yeah. Right, and like just got stomped. So one, money does a little bit less than you think in these in these elections. Um, two. Uh, Contributing to politics is, for most people, an act of identity expression. Um, it is an act about your values. It is about who you dislike in the world. I have like a section in 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 my book on this about how there's sort of two kinds of money in politics: there's sort of polarizing money and transactional money. Like there's money that comes from big corporate lobbyist groups and what they want is to get things done, but it's corrupting, right? It's transactional. And there's money that comes from from small donors and you know people on Act Blue. And they want to they want to win. Like they're they're really excited. But they like it goes to where their enthusiasm is, right? Which is going to be towards beating people they really hate, like Ted Cruz or Lindsey Graham on the left or AOC on the right, or it's going to go towards like somebody super inspiring. But it's not going to go towards a, a sort of boring candidate who fits well into like a Western state. And so what you need, which party organizations used to be, is a way to like channel the money into the place the money should actually go. But as you you have pretty sharp limits on donating to parties. Um, and so and there's a lot of other ways to donate now. And like these other players are better at like getting donations and the parties themselves are kind of unpopular. So like, the party, if like all the money like went to the party and the party sort of like did its magic to reallocate resources. And then like it would have given a lot of money to Bullock and less to Jamie Harrison. Uh, But that's not how this works. And so you just have a structural situation where the way you raise money from small donors is activating things they're excited about and activating their core identities. And that both pushes for candidates who run in a more polarizing way. I don't mean polarizing here as a bad thing, just like literally as a like like in order to mobilize, you have to polarize oftentimes. Um, and it it, it pushes um, actually away from these centralized, more generic distributors of money who might make different kinds of decisions. There are 
people who tried to do this in an interesting way, I, I, if I'm not wrong here, I think the Positive America guys had a fund that was like the Beat Mitch or Retire Mitch or something fund. And you might look at that and be like, ah, I'm donating to Amy McGrath, which you should not really have done. <laughs> but in fact, it was like a fund built around the iconography of Mitch McConnell that was giving to the races that were actually competitive. And I thought that was a pretty smart move. So you're going to need to do to do things like that. In terms of what's going to happen here, though, with like, how do you run these candidates and how do you find them? The only little glimmer here of bright spottiness that, that, that I think is that our assumptions about how groups are going to vote in the future may just not hold. So like on the one hand, something that's getting a little shredded right now is this idea of a rising demographic majority for, for Democrats. I mean, because if Donald Trump can make gains on the Hispanic vote acting the way he's acted, then like, you know, there's no real like that really puts a, a, a nail in the idea that a diversifying America is going to be an overwhelmingly progressive or democratic America. And by the way, if you look at um, younger white voters, like they, they they're pretty Trumpy, too. It's just that um, the young generation is, is is browner. So if you begin to make big gains among Hispanics and you can really have a, a significant conservative play there. On the other hand, one thing that I think is significant is that at the same time, like Biden made, it seems, improvements among white voters and particularly suburban white voters, which are a big part of the Republican coalition. So if that changes, and that's going to change some of these states pretty rapidly um, over the next four or six years, it just it's very hard for me to know what is a trend being accelerated by Donald Trump. What is a trend being um, slowed by by Donald Trump and the way he distorts politics? And what is simply not a trend at all and simply variation election to election? All right, let's uh, let's let's take a second break. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. One way of hope, actually, that I would note for the, I mean, it's it's a very long run, uh, but is if you, you mentioned sort of like white voters, quote unquote, in the suburbs, uh, which it's always hard to know exactly what, 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 where the suburbs are, what people mean by that. But if you, if you look at some of the states um, that are like all white people and totally uncontested, right? So Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, um, those were not uh, targeted by anybody or the, nobody was like, Biden was not like trying to appeal to swing voters in hopelessly out of reach rural plain states. Uh, but he gained about, um, 5% uh, relative to Hillary Clinton. And I think more than that in two-party vote share in all of those states, it's five states. Um, and those are the places that the Senate advantage sort of stems from. Uh, so, you know, gaining five points per cycle, you're still like three or four cycles off from winning. And it's not like an enormously uh, helpful, but it, it it reminded me of just exactly what you were saying that like politics is always like 20% weirder than you would think, you know, and just or like more. stuff. <laughs> well, but I mean, just in terms of like stuff happens outside the dimensions of, of the targeting strategies, like Trump really flooded the zone in the last couple months of the campaign with um, Spanish language messaging uh, when it became clear that he had an opportunity there. But like, it's really obvious that when Trump won the election, Republicans were not sitting around thinking like, well, okay, our big shot now is in the Rio Grande Valley. Like that that wasn't the plan. It was something they kind of 
stumbled into. I I think probably because of um, uh, Black Lives Matter stuff coming up later gave Republicans an opportunity that wasn't immediately obvious to them. So, I mean, I... I feel very like if you make me make a forecast, I have a forecast of doom. But life is stranger than than you would think. I mean, not just in like the polls are sometimes wrong kind of sense, but like human human beings are pretty unpredictable. This is one of those places where when I did the book, I got a lot of questions about like, how do you fix this? What do you do? And and I kept saying to people that I could give you policies that would work here. But the exact analysis of the book was that these policies aren't going to pass. And right now, I feel like that is being borne out. But the the other thing I always said is that in retrospect, I wish I had ended the book differently, which is not like, how do you solve it? Which I think is the formulaic way we end books like this, but just how could it change? How could the underlying structures here change? And we're seeing some of that now. I mean, over five or over three or four election cycles, right, the electorate just ages into a different electorate. And so like that's going to change things. Young voters are different in important ways. Over three or four election cycles, just things change in the way that different um, like the culture operates, like what are the issues actually out in reality that people are responding to? Like it really does move politics when when, when the world moves. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of analysis on the Hispanic vote um, this year, but like something something is going on there. I will say if I'm, by the way, trying to come up with with positive points here. I think it is a good thing for the Republican Party to see real opportunity with the Hispanic vote and and to somebody with the African-American vote, which, say what you will, is something the Trump administration began to believe towards the end. And they really did change their their messaging on this. I mean, it's a point Chris Hayes made to me after talking to Chuck Rocha, the the Hispanic um, strategist, uh, Hispanic vote strategist for Bernie Sanders. But something that was striking about the Trump administration or campaign this year was it was not about immigration at all. Um, they really, really, really did not emphasize immigration. And they really seem to soften, they really seem to soften their message uh, with Hispanic voters in an attempt to, to make some gains there. And it seems to have worked. They were they were running a sort of different campaign. And if Republicans see more possibility there, it may be that the Republican Party itself softens in some important ways, such that they are a different kind of coalition trying to raise up different voices and, and appeal to different voters. I don't feel incredibly optimistic about this particular line of analysis, but there is at least a glimmer in it where smart strategists dealing with a post-Trump world might want to do something about it. Because look, like everything we are saying on particularly the Senate level is holding a little bit in reverse on the presidential level, which is to say that the Republican Party's electoral college advantage there is real. But even with it being real, they have now lost seven out of eight presidential elections in terms of the popular vote. Nope, that has never happened to a party before in American history, right? It's an unbelievable level of national weakness. And some key states are changing fast enough that that EC advantage might go away for them. So if like Texas really becomes competitive in two cycles, or if Georgia is already competitive and it becomes more so over the next four years, like this begins to look pretty bad for Republicans. And they're not going to be happy never winning a presidential election ever again either. So there are going to be some incentives for that party to change a bit. And that party changing would be would be a productive thing. Yeah. So I, I feel like I'm rarely right about things. And I do want to I do want to claim claim victory on uh, the point the point you just made that, y- you know, you were talking about Chris Hayes and, and Chuck Rocha and Trump's uh, outreach to, to non-white voters, because, you know, if you if you recall at the Republican convention, Trump was clearly making a play uh, for black and, and Hispanic voters. And there was a lot of denial about that among progressives like people would insist oh the reason he's highlighting all these people is to try to make white suburban women feel less bad about voting for this racist um and i'm sure the trump campaign would have been thrilled if white suburban women found it reassuring that like trump had like some black cops up there and you know hispanic business owners uh but it was more simple than that, right? Like Trump was trying to take advantage of the fact that like, we know like cops like Trump, small business owners like Trump, some cops are black, some small business owners are Hispanic, some cops are Hispanic, some small business owners, you know, it's just like, you can try to get those voters, right? And that's all he was doing. And as you were saying, like, it's healthy for 
society, I think, to have the political parties think a little bit more in those terms. That like all people have cross-cutting identities. Like, you know, people will sometimes talk about identity politics, and then somebody else would be like, ah, but all politics is identity politics, which is completely true, right? But often identity politics- I mean, you, politics, you wrote a piece called All Politics is Identity Politics. Some people. But oftentimes, the politics that is practiced is exclusively a politics of ethnic identity. Yes. And it is good for America- for political parties to try to activate a different set, like just like different kinds of identities to have a less like embittered universe. Now, as it happens, like strong activation of cop identity, I think is really dangerous for American society because like police forces as partisan footballs has really, really sort of obvious problems. But I hope that Democrats, I, I I hope that we don't get into a conversation about like, oh, too much identity politics. And then, like I said, like, oh, well, all the politics is identity politics, right? It's a question of like, what identities and which politics and for what reason. And the fact that Trump was able to pull off this thing that people as of July were saying was like inconceivable just is striking in its own terms. Um, Not because it like means everyone was wrong about Trump, but because it does mean that people were wrong about the scope of political possibilities, like people on the left, but also people on the right. Like there was this really high turnout election. And it's not obvious that that hampered Republicans in any particular way. So like maybe next time they cannot be so obsessed with making it difficult for people to vote. Right. Like that would be nice if it was just if it was just easier to vote rather than this being a, a constant political gambit. Like I, I I wish conservatives would recognize what a strong position they are in in a lot of ways and just like chill out. Yeah, I, I think that is a, a, a real good point. Um Patrick Ruffini, who's who's a Republican strategist, keeps making this point that it is not at all clear that conservatives are hurt by there being high turnout. And in particular, it's not at all clear if conservatives begin aiming their strategies at high turnout, right? I mean, it, the politics is dynamic. If you if you can't win by suppressing the vote or using this weird minoritarian pathway, you might remake your party to be popular. And there's just no reason to believe Republicans can't do that, particularly given some of the some of the like the little advantages they have in 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 the geographic distribution, right? If they can't re- rely on like seven points in the Senate, but instead it were two or three, like that's enough to like reorient your party in a useful way so that you are not constantly winning with a, a, a minority of the vote, but also like be able to have a little bit of a cushion. So yeah, like that'd be nice. Like let's hope the Republican Party takes some good lessons from this. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more to come on just what everybody's lessons are as we learn more about it, because just right now it's, you know, we're on, I, I was joking today that it's not Thursday when we're taping this, it's day three of Tuesday, uh, day three of election day. And that's how it feels like it's, we're, we're still a little bit caught in the fog here. So I think we're going to know more soon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thanks, Ezra. Thanks uh, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. Thanks to our sponsors. Uh, the Weeds will be back on Tuesday when hopefully we will have even more information so we can have uh, takes that, you know, maybe not quite as hot, but are um, uh, well cooked and actually accurate. Uh, so Weeds will be back on Tuesday. 